Hello my friends, this is Sarah from Weird Horizon, where we explore topics on the spooky, the esoteric, the countercultural, and the just plain weird. Thank you for coming back to the series on cryptozoology again with me. We are going to be focusing for another week on the theories surrounding Yeti, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, and other large, hairy, bipedal primates generally referred to by those attempting to prove their physical existence as anomalous primates. Today we are going to be exploring some of the more famous hoaxes that dogged the pursuit for proof of anomalous primates pretty much from day one. So many have claimed that all manner of Sasquatch and Bigfoot evidence is faked, but often the proof for them being fake is as tenuous as the proof for them being real. But nonetheless, this association with fakes has followed the sort of cryptozoological community around since very, very early days. So again, this week we're going to be approaching Bigfoot and Sasquatch through the viewpoint of the scientists and explorers who sought physical evidence for their existence and attempted to situate them in our accepted scientific framework. Once again, this episode was greatly informed by the two works which I've already cited again and again, Searching for Sasquatch, Crackpots, Eggheads and Cryptozoology by Brian Regal and The Locals, a contemporary investigation of the Bigfoot-Sasquatch phenomenon by Tom Powell. I will make the rest of my references available in the show notes should you wish to have a look. But for now, let's get on with some hoaxes. Or maybe not hoaxes at all. Maybe they're hoax hoaxes. So the hunt for anomalous apes today is bigger and more widespread than ever. Those searching for the creatures have more tools at their disposal than anyone who came before them. Reports of their sightings are numerous, so the Bigfoot Field Research Organization lists at least one report from every state except Hawaii over the past two decades. But for most people, Bigfoot and Sasquatch are still a creature of legend, not fact. And one potential reason for this is the string of high-profile hoaxes around the subject. So unfortunately, there isn't really any one piece of evidence in this search that isn't marred in some way by the association or by the suggestion of fraud. Technology has ruined the old cryptozoology, says Lauren Coleman, founder of the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine. Despite being a true believer, Carpenter admits that anyone attempting a scholarly or methodical study of Bigfoot, Sasquatch, etc., has to contend with the huge amounts of fake and obviously forged footage and evidence around Bigfoot. So the wider the net is cast, the more specific and nuanced the evidence presented, the more infamous the hoax is. As Bigfoot scholars and hoaxers attempt to kind of outsmart each other, the suspicion at the heart of anomalous ape study only strengthened to form the sort of fragmented, slightly lonely collection of individuals we spoke of last week. So this exploration we will have to limit ourselves to only a few hoaxes, but if you are interested in more, simply Google Bigfoot proof and have fun with people's creative but often awful attempts at proof. So this association with hoaxes goes one way to answering one of the questions we've been answering over the last couple of weeks being, why were these men who were seemingly on the same side in this at such fierce opposition to the rest of the world and often to one another. And one explanation is, of course, the fact that the project as a whole always suffered through its association with the times in the past that they had been fooled. 
Take the Minnesota Iceman, for example. So willingness to investigate was entangled with an idea that they all believed in hook, line and sinker. And with a field struggling to find its legitimacy, high-profile blunders had the potential to take everyone down with them. So when Frank Hansen came into possession of a specimen nicknamed the Minnesota Iceman and displayed it at the International Livestock Expedition in Chicago, he did not even have to reach out to the cryptozoological world. They came to him. He apparently received the creature from a millionaire who acquired it in Asia and wanted to exhibit it but keep his identity a secret. So this relic of the Ice Age, he claims, was found in the waters off Siberia. So harking back to this old-fashioned idea of the exotic and far-flung as the secret world of monsters. So cautious but curious, the fathers of cryptozoology, Ivan Sanderson and Bernard Huvermont, went to investigate and peered at the creature through the ice. Photographing the obscured figure and sort of sketching as best as they could what they believed was contained within the block of ice, the men were nevertheless completely convinced by the partial image they saw within. So Huvermont later postulated it may be related to the Ainu people of Japan, which again is a rather dodgy sort of early anthropological idea that suggests the indigenous Japanese people may have a different genealogical lineage to modern Japanese people and kind of aligned the Ainu with human-like non-humans. But we'll put that aside. Crucially, despite these associations, both men were believers in the theory that anomalous primates may represent a relic Neanderthal population. And inspecting the body encased in ice, although it was more human-sized and humanly proportioned than reported Sasquatch experiences, it was more closely allied with the description of a similar cryptid, the Almasti of Asia, which again was where the body was supposedly sourced from. From this, the men drew multiple conclusions. Both that their Neanderthal relic theory may hold water, as well as the related theory picking up steam in the field that anomalous primates of various regions may have physical similarities but different genetic origins. We consider this to be a genuine and unique example of a most priceless specimen, Sanderson writes to John Napier, director of primate biology at the Smithsonian. So Sanderson and Hoovermon will quickly write up the Hansen case and seek opinions from others in the field. Carlton Kuhn and George Agagino all provided comment for the article's magazine publication. Sanderson also began to explore the avenues by which he may secure the Iceman for further study, including copies of his memo, along with his requests to the FBI, Department of Agriculture, among many others. As Regal explains in Searching for Sasquatch, the Hansen memo is a curious document. At 15 pages in length, it seems to have been written with Sanderson in an emotional state. It staggers back and forth between scholarly calm and almost out-of-control agitation over a wide range of issues. And the quote he uses to summarise says it all. So in Sanderson's words, We are thus presented with the deplorable picture of the public waiting for just this concrete proof of all that has been drilled into them by both religion and science, while the communications industry drivels and shakes in its intellectual boots 
and the scientists deliberately tried to sink the ship. Sanderson was convinced that this was a huge breakthrough and equally as convinced that what would trip them up would be the thing they needed most, validation from the scientific field, an irreconcilable fear we've seen permeate the entire field directly following the failures of the prominent Yeti expedition efforts, and unfortunately is a trap that they themselves would fall into with this very public failure. But despite his thorough distrust for scientists, there were many who were keen to examine the specimen, specifically the informal Iceman Committee formed of scientists and others at the Smithsonian Institute. So despite what Sanderson thought, they were also in agreement that the specimen may represent something of value and may advance human scientific knowledge. But when they attempted to seize the specimen for study, Hansen informed them that the owner had taken it back and it would not be returned. The Iceman was gone, and with it gone, the cracks started to show. So the story was to be covered in full dramatic glory in Argosy, America's first pulp magazine with a sizable readership and influence. But there was an issue. When Sanderson and Hoovermond's photos and sketches were reproduced in large magazine quality, the figure inside read as more chimp than man. Even the experienced wildlife artist, John Shoner, hired to do this difficult job of translating the obscured image inside into a cohesive object, said to him that the figure simply just did not look like a human or did not look human-like. Sanderson, though, pressed him to make revisions so that the pictures may more closely match what he thought or hoped was in the ice, the ice man, the aspect around which all the rest of the theories were built upon. Despite his misgivings, Shona agreed to make the changes so that the public may see the Iceman as the cryptozoologists believed, hoped it was, under the ice somewhere. They would never find out what really was below the ice, but they would have some informed guesses and none were particularly good for Hoovermont or Sanderson. So without access to the body, Napier studied photos and videos, and the Smithsonian also called Hollywood prop houses and found one that admitted to creating the Iceman in 1967. So the Smithsonian announced that it was satisfied that the creature was simply a carnival exhibit made of latex, rubber and hair. The fathers of cryptozoology had been fooled by a simple carnival trick. So the Minnesota Iceman came close to ending scientific interest in anomalous primates forever. After such a public debacle, few scientists, even if they thought the creatures real, would be likely to go public now. After all, what evidence could they put forward that would support their case? How could they trust even the most persuasive evidence, particularly the most persuasive evidence? They had seemingly lost their chance at having the scientific world join them in the analysis of anomalous ape evidence. So the next breakthrough would have to take a different angle, and would. So it would have to persuade the public at large of the existence of these creatures, believed up until now to be myth, and present the kind of evidence that the world could not ignore as fake. 
Giant Footprints Puzzle Residence read the 1958 headline in the Humboldt Times that brought us the name Bigfoot. So the name would transform a creature of legend, the Sasquatch, into one stripped of some of its spiritual associations and presented in a new context as a modern American legend. And it also presented the best, most plausible evidence for an anomalous ape creature existing in the dense forest that it had unwittingly left large prints behind. So this was a much more plausible scenario than a whole specimen falling into private hands. The tracks nonetheless brought a fair amount of media attention to the area. So a member of the logging company that made the discovery was one Ray Wallace. But it was revealed after Wallace's death by his sons that it was their belief that the tracks sightings and recordings he made to support these sightings had been faked. So from an article in the LA Times on the alleged situation, Wallace's version of Bigfoot arose August 5th, 1958, when he used a 16-inch model of a human foot, a friend carved from Alderwood, to leave tracks around logging gear as a prank on a fellow logger. So the reason for it all was chalked up to just a simple joke that got out of hand. So again, a quote from his sons. He was a prankster, but never malicious. He just liked playing jokes. So once again, Wallace did not set out specifically to fool the cryptozoological field with his prints, but they found him. So not everyone was completely convinced that Wallace's trickery was just that as they would have to ignore the large amount of anthropological work that had gone into making a case for the creature's existence. So Jeff Meldrum, for example, the Idaho State University anthropologist I've already spoken about, is in agreement with Grover Krantz and in agreement with those that say that some of the hallmarks contained within these prints would be improbable or at least highly unlikely to be reproduced by a fraudster. There are details within them that are just too specific. However, the story of such a high-profile fake at the heart of the community does cast doubts over the field as a whole. So cryptozoologists had been working on the assumption that the Wallace prints had been fake for some time, but they believed it is only a small blip in a field that was slowly accumulating more and better quality evidence. But says Meldrum, Bluff Creek brought the idea into the public psyche and into the morning newspaper, but this thing has roots that go deeper than any isolated incident. If I had come to the conclusion it was all a hoax, I would have washed my hands of it years ago. So Bigfoot and later the Patterson-Gimlin film, made Bluff Creek into a sort of Sasquatch hotspot, even when many in the field acknowledged the contradiction that the Sasquatch were not known to have any specific feeding grounds, migratory routes, etc. So the Sasquatch were suspected of doing all that they could to hide from human eyes. So why would they allow themselves to leave traces in the same spot again and again? But ultimately, when Wallace died in 2002, his family decided to confirm what had been long suspected, that Bigfoot had been a hoax, a practical joke all along. But this, of course, ignores the body of legend and history that came before 1958. 
So Whitehall resident Paul Bartholomew, co-author of the 1992 book Monsters of the Northwoods, calls it a ridiculous assertion that Wallace was the sole force behind the mystery. To quote, It's a global phenomenon, and to suggest that this one man created it is ludicrous, says Bartholomew. And again, this argument sidesteps the idea that multiple people could be involved in this ruse, perhaps independently. And it hinges on the theory that the prints are so distinctive that basically nobody is skilled or knowledgeable enough to fake or create them. But again, this simply might not be true. So let's take a look at the Bosberg incident and let's continue to have a look at some of the doubts that surround even the best quality Bigfoot evidence. So Bosberg, as it exists today, is a ghost town in Stevens County, Washington, best known for the discovery of the Cripplefoot tracks found there. In late 1969, large human-like prints were found near the town dump, but the key difference between these tracks and others like them, such as the Bigfoot tracks, was the distinctive right foot, markedly different from the left, earning the originators of the track the names, the Bosberg Cripple and later Cripplefoot, following in the grand tradition of naming these creatures after their feet. <laughs> so the prints displayed right footprints betraying a type of acquired or congenital clubfoot deformity. So if you're interested in the analysis of these prints, particularly the example they present of the deformity metatarsus adductus, there is an excellent talk by Jeff Meldrum on YouTube, which is linked in the show notes. But a few days after the discovery of these amazing prints, Bigfoot researcher René de Hinden arrived on the scene, who you may remember from his lifelong hatred of Grover Krantz. So he was the first to arrive on the scene, but very soon more Sasquatch hunters arrived to analyse the situation and by mid-December, over a thousand human-like tracks were found in the snow, heading to and from a local river. Now, the list of those who had come to see and study the tracks swelled to include Grover Krantz, Roger Patterson of the Patterson-Gimlin film, primatologist John Napier, anthropologist Jeff Meldrum, as well as, of course, René de Hinden. So, to quote... John Napier, a world-renowned expert on the evolution of human locomotion, admitted that he could not conceive that the Bosberg tracks were fabricated. As we've already mentioned as well, for Grover Krantz, these were the tracks that he was so persuaded by that it turned the hunt for Sasquatch for him into his lifelong pursuit. But as you can already tell, even the scientists whose theories are best supported by these tracks immediately have to come at this from the angle of disproving a fake straight away because of the fakes that have come before them. So both Krantz and Meldrum agree that the bony proportions implied by the Bosberg tracks are biomechanically consistent with the large body mass significantly beyond human range. A potential hoaxer, it is argued, would be unlikely to understand the subtle functional transformations that would be entailed in scaling up a human foot to a biped of the staggering size of Bigfoot. 
But the suspicion of this supposed good fortune that all the big hitters in the field should be here to witness the discovery of new and impressive tracks was not lost on De Hinden. So a lifelong sceptic, he had noticed a jeep close to the tracks when he was investigating and hypothesised that inside he might find who was really responsible for these tracks, that perhaps he had run into them on their way back from creating them. It seemed a little bit too good to be true for him, and at this point there was no confirmation that the Bigfoot tracks were faked after all, but it was a suspicion held by many. They just seemed a bit too good to be true. Ultimately, though, even de Hinden was impressed and convinced by the tracks. After all, in Regal's words, if the Bosberg tracks of the crippled individual were made by a hoaxer, there are several considerations. One is that he had to know human anatomy with great detail. He had to be able to devise distortions of the anatomy, and he had to calculate exactly how an enlarged individual would have to be constructed in order to walk properly. As we discussed in a previous episode, there are details to these tracks that lend credence to the physical anthropological theories, which hypothesized a kind of creature which biomechanically was capable of producing prints of this specific quality, as well as moving in the way that many witnesses claim. So these prints, specifically the cripple's foot, were rich with information about the muscular skeletal structure of the creature that left them. So the prints left behind were more detailed and more complicated than could be created by a simple fake foot pressed into dirt and snow. And they also seemed to to tell a coherent picture, i.e. the physical changes manifested in the crippled right foot were coherent with them being from the same creature i.e. the weight distribution seemed about right, the changes in how the foot was moved seemed about right. It all seemed to tell a coherent narrative. And as we've mentioned, there was suspicion that um, the Bigfoot prints were faked, but no one has managed to come forward with the big Bigfoot stamp that was apparently used to press these into the earth. The proof that these were faked is hinging purely on the word of one man. That does not mean that they weren't faked, but the proof for the fake is quite elusive in a lot of these cases, as you'll hear. Nonetheless, the sudden interest in the area brought with it media attention again, and the opportunity to make a quick profit. And this was the issue, not really the quality of the cripple footprints, it's that in the media hubbub, Joe Metlow, a prospector, claimed to have what all of the investigators wanted. He claimed to have trapped a Sasquatch in a nearby abandoned mine shaft and offered a peek at the creature to the highest bidder. Ultimately, though, this offer would come to nothing, but it would not be the only attempt to give Bigfoot hunters evidence that they desperately wanted. It wasn't even the only time Metlow attempted to do this, so he tried to escalate the situation again by claiming to have a frozen Bigfoot foot available for view. So again, it seemed like his main objective was to see if he could fool the community into taking an interest in this rather obvious ruse. But the strength of the Cripplefoot tracks in many people's eyes 
no doubt meant they were a little bit more gullible. They were more likely to give things a go just due to where they were found. A weakness, of course, that pretty much throws all of Bigfoot and Sasquatch evidence into doubt. What's more, the foundation upon which Krantz and Meldrum's analysis rests, the idea that the Bosberg prints were different enough from an enlarged human foot and that the prints gave enough detail to extrapolate musculature and structure of an anomalous ape foot and by extension body, has been thrown into question. So a recent study into the variation into terrestrial bird and dinosaur tracks suggested that the appearance of tracks often has less to do with the structure of the foot than it does with the substrate, i.e. the soil and terrain upon which it is pressed. This is something we have seen with yeti prints in snow. Due to the fact that they are found in snow, they have very specific, very different qualities to them down to their substrate. Thus, in the dynamic context of locomotion, it cannot be assured that an imprint of a foot bears a perfect image of the foot's structure. Unfortunately, another nail in the coffin for many when it comes to the Bosberg tracks is that there is only one set of tracks preserved for study, despite the discovery of thousands. So it seems on one hand to present an opportunity for a sampling of huge, unique prints, but the fact that only a snapshot remains reads to some as suspicious. Another issue with Krantz and Meldrum's method of biomechanical reconstruction is that we do not have available for study a in-cast or even photograph or sketch form, a print of a child or adolescent Sasquatch. Therefore, we cannot satisfy the question of why the tracks were uniquely and definitely from an adult Sasquatch. And if they weren't from an adult Sasquatch, then all the math that went into calculating how the foot must be formed and matching it against assumed locomotion, etc., is missing a key puzzle piece. But there is even more to the Bosberg tracks. So Ivan Marks, a long-time Bigfoot hunter, was living in Bosberg at the time the tracks began to appear, and he eventually shot a film of the crippled Sasquatch. Now, it is universally regarded as a hoax, this film, even among the staunchest Bigfoot advocates, though no one has specifically settled on who should receive proper credit for the fraud. De Hinden also claimed that Marx had been seen purchasing furs in a nearby town before the film would materialise. As to why anyone would fake evidence of this kind, I think the answer to the question in this case is immediately apparent. Money. So even though Metlow's trapped Sasquatch and frozen Sasquatch foots ultimately came to nothing, this was not before huge amounts of money were offered for access to this prize. So despite everything, there was clearly a want within the community to be the first to analyse this evidence. Perhaps because so many involved had radically different ideas on what proof they were seeking and also because clearly to a certain extent many wanted to be the first to get the scoop on it. Wherever Bigfoot news appeared, the media was fresh on the scent, and cryptozoologists would find them. The search for Bigfoot and Sasquatch for a very brief time offered a kind of celebrity, 
and a voice to those who oftentimes felt silence. But the ultimate scoop was seemingly still to come, and this scoop exists to this day as the most famous and most interesting piece of Bigfoot media up to the present day. Much maligned, assumed to be fake, too good to be true. Ultimately, the Patterson-Gimlin film is yet to be persuasively replicated. But for Patterson and Gimlin, for them it was a chance to see if they could prove the rumours flying around in the media and bring life to a creature they had long since heard of in legend. He said, let me show you something, Gimlin recalls. He went over to the truck and brought out a plaster cast of a big foot. Patterson asked Gimlin if he would be interested in searching Mount St. Helens on horseback with him for evidence of a Bigfoot. The men would eventually head out, admittedly after some reluctance from Gimlin, seemingly to their date with destiny. The resulting six-second film would tear the couple's friendship apart, and they would only make up on Patterson's deathbed. Seemingly a kind of miracle, the film has been described as cryptozoology's own Zabruder film, poured over, analysed and used to support and debunk all manner of theories. It remains to this day the only piece of video evidence publicly available which has not been completely debunked, but this was far from a wholly positive thing. By 1972, Patterson had died. Gimlin alone faced the scourge of detractors that were emerging around the country. Some even confronted him and his wife in their hometown. Yakima was the place where Gimlin had become known for his fearlessness and strength, and suddenly he was seen as crazy. His word, his handshake, currency around this part of the state, was in doubt. So if the film was truly faked, it was hard to explain what exactly the pair got out of it in the long term. Like Grover Krantz and others who had come before him, Gimlin suffered from the mere association with Bigfoot, and ironically, it may have been better for him if he could prove it to be a fake than leave it in limbo as a potential real deal. But Hollywood has never succeeded in duplicating the Patterson-Gimlin film. They have made their hairy ape men, they have deluded our TV screens with furry snarling antagonists, and suffocated a legion of brave actors under a veritable sea of prepackaged yak hair, but they have never duplicated the Patterson Gimlin film. This is from an article analysing the film from the aspect of special effects. What kind of special effects could go into creating this figure of a Bigfoot? we still have this question of how it could be faked. So the same can be said about the Cripplefoot tracks, says Meldrum on the subject. Many have claimed that the prints could be faked, but nobody has managed to come forward and show how it is to be done. Nonetheless, often the claim that it could be faked is enough for most people. People do not require the same amount of verifiable evidence to prove a fake as they do the genuine article, which is just kind of a bit of a quirk of how the human mind works, honestly. Many have claimed to be the guy in the suit, but nobody can convincingly recreate the film or put forward any real evidence for this. So Bob Hieronymus is one such figure, a retired Pepsi bottler from Yakima, Washington, 
he has said this to say about the supposed fake. I've been burdened with this for 36 years. Seeing the film clip on TV numerous times, somebody's making lots of money off of this, except for me. But that's not the issue. The issue is that it's time to finally let people know the truth. But it is hard, at least for me, to ignore the root of the issue for Bob. And again, it was money. He could see that people were making money off of the footage and wanted to get in on it. And how could anyone deny him without either revealing themselves how it was faked or providing what decades of anomalous primate researchers had failed to provide and desperately wanted, convincing physical evidence of a live Sasquatch or similar? This footage seemed to remain permanently in this realm of possibly faked. So Bob's evidence for him being involved in the fake is as shifty as the evidence that it is legit. So Bob claims that, as a friend of Patterson and Gimlin, he was asked to don an ape suit and meet at a specified rendezvous to appear on film for $1,000. It was said the whole thing would only take about an hour, and all he had to do was step into frame at the aforementioned moment. And the reason he didn't keep his mouth shut about his part in the fake even as the piece of footage, as you mentioned, became famous, reproduced, referenced in media to the point that it was saturated, he didn't receive his $1,000. But the ape suit he mentioned has never surfaced, and so the links we have between Hieronymus and the film are tenuous at best. So Bob touts his Bigfoot-like walk as the most convincing link, but this has faced some criticism as when asked to recreate his Bigfoot walk, the walk that he did in the film to appear as the sort of ape man, Bob recreated some of the film's artefacts, only viewable on reprints of the film, implying that he had worked backwards to create his proof. He has also been criticised for dropping his trademark Bigfoot walk when not appearing on camera. He claimed he appeared as Patty, the figure in the film, in a custom suit created by a man named Philip Morris. But when Morris was questioned on it, he claimed the suit was simply a gorilla suit bought off of the rack. So there was no consistency between those involved in the fake either. So as we mentioned, it is as hard to prove it as a fake as it is to prove it is real. And many have pointed out the fact that even Hollywood special effects of the time were just not sophisticated enough to create the kind of effect we see in the film, pointing towards things like Planet of the Apes as a sort of contemporary example of the kind of figure it depicts and the stark difference between those and Patty. So this is ignoring the fact that Patterson and Gimlin were apparently working with a micro-budget to the point that they hired their lead actor in this fraud for $1,000 and then didn't even pay him. Even with an unlimited budget, there were a number of challenges to overcome in making Bigfoot from a man in a suit. So again, to quote, In terms of transforming a man into an ape, there are three obstacles that need to be overcome. Hair, limb proportions, and torso width. A suit of fur simply does not move in a way that implies it is connected with the flesh underneath, unless it actually is. So heavy fur bunches together. This is an issue that Hollywood Sasquatch 
attempts have run into. And one way to avoid this, a method which Barry Keith, that is a pseudonym, by the way, in his article on the subject, the Patterson-Gimlin film, What Makes a Hoax Absolutely Genuine, mentions is to create a suit with distinctive form-fitting pieces, like how Chewbacca is created in Star Wars. But then this suit of separate pieces creates an opposite issue, seems. But these are not visible on the Patterson-Gimlin film. We neither see wrinkles nor seams in a sort of furry covering of the body. The head-shoulder connection is perfectly visible and there is no excessive hair at all to obscure the smooth shoulders and back. This is not standard procedure. Thick reams of heavy hair being the tool of choice to conceal pesky wrinkles and bubbles in the neckline. So even with sophisticated Hollywood special effects, notable seams and joints had to be obscured by necessity. And this is something we simply don't see in the moving figure in the Patterson-Gimlin film. So the next issue is arm length. First, not only are the upper limits disproportionately long by human standards, but the length is not achieved by merely elongating the forearm. In other words, the upper arm is elongated as well. Her elbow is in proper position. Second, her wrist and hands are also seen to be moving. No explanation for this has been offered by the debunkers. So again, Keith uses as a point of contrast the issues with creating King Kong for the screen, in which the lengthened arms needed to create this ape-like silhouette meant the use of prosthetic arms with no articulation. There was simply not the kind of technology needed to artificially lengthen arms in a way that made them look convincingly alive. And if there were, Keith argues, it surely would have found its way into Hollywood in order to wow cinema audiences. But because many assume the film is made with simply advanced special effects and masterful costume work, many believed it to be the handiwork of John Chambers, the costume man of the 60s and the man behind the apes in Planet of the Apes. But this, of course, ignores the many glaring differences between these figures. So pretty much all of the apes are clothed in Planet of the Apes for obvious reasons. And nobody even bothered to ask Chambers to explain why he would fake the Patterson-Gimlin film, even after Patterson was long dead. And there was simply no plausible reason to keep up this pretense anymore. Bulk is another issue. So how to create the illusion of a creature around four times the weights of an average male? So Hollywood's answer to this is padding. So strapping panels to the body in question in order to preserve articulation, but to add bulk, to add the impression of musculature. But for obvious reasons, it is hard, although not impossible, to bulk up the joints themselves. So film attempts often fall apart when it gets to tiny hands and elbows attached to huge muscular arms, for example. But although the Patterson-Gimlin film is short, it does not portray any of the hallmark flaws of attempts of this kind. And crucially, it shows a figure in motion. How would these flaws be hidden in a film of this age and apparently zero budget? 
so it is easy to point at modern footage and pick out the hallmarks of digital manipulation, as we've all been trained to spot them, and in many ways we choose to ignore them in order to maintain an illusion. But we are not tricked by them in the same way we are convinced by the Patterson-Gimlin film. The film seems to be one of the most convincing pieces of evidence to this day, and of the rarer class of Bigfoot encounters, Class A encounters, sightings, and even rarer still, sightings with captured images. It is also captured at Bluff Creek, where the original Bigfoot tracks were discovered, lending support to the popular idea that it may be a kind of Bigfoot hotspots. Of course, for sceptics, it also meant that anything found in that area read as too convenient. That the Patterson-Gimlin film was created in the same place that Wallace had staged his hoax is just one reason to doubt its authenticity. And that Patterson supposedly acted on a tip from Wallace to head into the mountains is another. But the way the creature moves in the film seems to align with the theories of Krantz and his contemporaries, and how it should move based on prints and the characteristics shared by most of these prints. The flexible midfoot, an ape-like foot with a mid-tarsal break and mid-tarsal pressure ridge. So again, Jeff Meldrum does a great job of explaining from a scientific point of view how the prints match our assumptions about the skeletal structure of the being's foot. And crucially, he believes this mid-tarsal break is visible in the Patterson-Gimlin film, with the flexing of the muscles of the leg lending even more credence to his theory. But there is though a limit to what can be derived from the film. It is not the highest quality piece of filmmaking, and without certain pieces of the puzzle, without knowledge of the speed of which the footage was captured and the focal length at which the film was recorded, estimates of the size and speed of the creature are just that, they are estimates. But as we've pointed out, it is as hard to prove real as it is to prove it a fake. So again to quote, It has withstood scrutiny from scientists, forensic analysts, Hollywood special effects experts and costume designers. No one can quite explain it, except those who believe in the folklore. How is it that the evidence has not gotten any better, despite the exponential increase in the quality and quantity of cameras, asked Benjamin Radford, a research fellow with the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. And there is a simple reason for this. The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence either. So numerous long-running shows and communities have failed to find evidence, even when it might have kept people interested in their unfolding narrative. Patty arguably created the Bigfoot industry. There is money in finding proof of Bigfoot, yet nothing has yet materialised. But on the other hand, there is also money in perpetuating the mystery and keeping it in a state of constant flux. But the kind of evidence that cryptozoologists today are looking for is different from what regular people would accept as proof of Bigfoot. Of course, there is no across-the-board consensus on what constitutes Bigfoot evidence. One man's definitive print could be the next one's divot in the mud. 
but the kind of proof sought by cryptozoologists has in general moved away from these kinds of evidences that are easily touted as fake as a sort of reflex now. So any footprints are assumed to be fake, any images, any blurry images, immediately assumed to be fake. Because of each one of the high-profile fakes, even if the evidence for them being fake is very circumstantial, is weak at best a lot of the time. So I can see why the movement has largely moved away from seeking these kinds of evidence. So as spoken of in Tom Powell's The Locals, evidence for Bigfoot and Sasquatch nowadays comes down mostly to eyewitness accounts, or evidence which better supports the hypothesis that the creatures are intentionally aiming to not leave evidence behind for us humans to find. So he speaks of sort of coaxing out evidence, the idea that the creatures are simply too smart to be leaving footprints around, as, like many large predators, they have the means and intelligence to disguise their movements. So modern Sasquatch hunters look for things such as branches broken off at heights, trees moved from their resting place, evidence that large bipedal creatures are coexisting with the forest in more subtle ways than just traipsing barefoot through the mud. It is hard to define what kind of Bigfoot print or footage would satisfy the cryptozoological community now, let alone the world at large, or if it could even theoretically exist at all. I'd be very interested in revisiting this subject in a few years for this reason, just to see how the community reacts to being sort of backed into the corner by hoaxes like this. And on that note, we will tread our way away from the scientific study of anomalous apes and explore some more of the context around the subject next week. So we're going to be looking at some of the theories that situate Bigfoot in the context of a willing or unwilling delusion, some kind of mass hallucination or a mental side effect of some specific environment, i.e. are people only experiencing the appearance of a Bigfoot encounter? And if so, what is causing this impression? So I hope to catch you next week. In the meantime, you can find me wherever you consume your podcasts and you can chat with me on Twitter as Weird Horizon and on Instagram as Weird Horizon Podcast. And search Weird Horizon Podcast on YouTube for episodes there as well. If that is how you like to consume your content. I know I am guilty of falling asleep to other people's channels, so... Come and sleep to my voice if you fancy. It all still counts towards the algorithm. So much love as always. But for now, bye.